Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, where today we are looking at the origin of evil. But before we get uh, fully into the, that side of things, it was sort of partially semi-planned to be done last week and it would have fitted quite nicely with Halloween and everything, but uh, we didn't actually didn't actually get to that. But we... Um, We'll get to it this week, and we've actually got a few little ministry reports as well, which will be added in both from Diane and John, which we're looking forward to because a lot has been going on in the world of creation research in the last little while. You may have noticed we are devoid of Craig Hawkins, uh, who is currently leading a field trip, so do remember him in your prayers, uh, particularly for some great fossils. But we are, of course, joined by John Mackay, Dr. Glenn Wilson, Sam Jenkins, and Diane, you're in the room with me. Yes, I am. We're actually in one place at one time. So there you go. It's great yes. stuff, isn't it? Excellent, excellent. Um, in fact, uh, Diane, why don't we uh, we'll start with you? Because uh, we're going to go around and do a, a couple of little uh, ministry reports from Diane and from John um, and about some of the, the exciting stuff that's been going on in the last little while. So, Diane, if I just uh, hand uh, the laptop over to you for a Oh, no, you keep pressing the mute button. That's my fault. There we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can, but you're coming through your, your laptop uh, microphone. Uh, I don't know what I've done there. Never mind. Oh, dear. It always goes wrong. Right technical, issues, technical issues, folks. Please bear with. Yes, yes. yes <laughs> this is live. Shall I vamp? We're back on. There we are. Right. Um, let me just get up this and we are all go uh, to be able to do this there we are happy days diane over to you yes any idea where we are <laughs> I, I i have a guess <laughs> uh i'm gonna guess the body shop that's where you went well, it wasn't specifically for the body shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Carry on. No, we, um, we went on a visit to Darwin's birthplace, Shrewsbury in Shropshire, and the local authorities are really pushing that uh, or getting the most out of the fact that uh, it is Darwin's birthplace. It's not the place where he spent most of his adult life doing all his research. But uh, he definitely was born there and grew up and went to school there. And the local authorities and the local businesses are wringing all they can out of the association with Darwin. And uh, so um, you can go to uh, this nice place on the, on the river there and they have references to Darwin there, HMS Beagle taking Darwin around the globe. On the side there, they have this iconic image. Um, we have a better version of this image, don't we? On a, you can buy one of our T-shirts with, um, with with an appropriate comment about that about that image. Uh, but the the most striking thing we came across was coffee evolution. 
Now, we didn't try the evolution coffee because we were afraid it might have evolved into something that uh, <laughs> may not have been all that palatable. <laughs> I like my coffee to stay as coffee. I, I don't want my coffee to evolve. Uh, but it is interesting how much they are really pushing the association with Darwin and the theory of evolution, particularly to the next generation. Now, notice where they have this uh, picture of the uh, tree of life. So when you go there with your children in tow, while you order your evolution coffee and hope it doesn't evolve in the next million years, your children can contemplate uh, this tree of life, which is just there at their level. And uh, there's that little uh, game they can play. Can you spot your favorite animal? So they're really trying to uh, draw in the next generation. Then you can go and visit this sign here, right? The, the Shrewsbury Comics Trail. But notice again, it's all based on the association with Darwin and with evolution. And this big poster here, which is the start of uh, a trail, a tourist trail around the town, which you start with your uh, smartphone QR code, is next to this building here. And this building is the uh, school that Darwin would have gone to when he was a young, uh, when he was a young lad. Uh, but notice what they say about the building now. Today, the building has evolved. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what things evolve these days? And, and that is a common thing you will find all, all over the place. The word evolution or evolve is used a lot in advertising these days. It's all part of the push to get that word into people's minds that any kind of change is evolution. We see change all the time, therefore evolution must be true. Um, but we did go and visit uh, Darwin's statue and uh, we're not worshipping at the feet of Darwin there because in fact he was a rather sad man and uh, by the time he got to this uh, age, he certainly didn't look like that while he was at school. This is Darwin in his old age. And uh, he looks a bit like the original grumpy old man, actually. But, but, um, but he was a rather sad man by this age because he admitted himself to uh, uh, someone who'd written to him, I am sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as divine revelation and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So there was a man who started out his life actually studying theology in his early adult life, and now he's saying that he no longer believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And without that belief, of course, he has turned his back on salvation. Now, this was about two years before he died, and there's no evidence that he ever repented of that view in the last couple of years of his life, which is uh, really tragic. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about uh, Darwin's descent from being a bright young theological graduate to someone who had really turned his back on God and was advising people on how to best un to undermine Christianity, uh, we have a PDF uh, article available from our fact file. If you just go to creation fact file, or go to the link uh, that you can get through our main site, creationresearch.net. Uh, there's a, a free article there describing Darwin's descent and uh, what a tragedy that was. 
And if we can just come back to us now. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much for that, Diane. And uh, yes, we will uh, move swiftly on to the next uh, report because uh, we've had a lot of fun uh, taking uh, Diane around over the last few days. So um, there we are. I will double check the audio in just a second. Um, Shogiwa, thank you for that. But uh, we'll hand over to somebody who has got good audio, which is John McKay. Ah, oh, Glenn, you're wearing our T-shirt now. Great. <laughs> Available from all creation research offices. So order yours right now. Great Christmas present for everybody around. I like it. There we go. All right. Um, John, over to you for your report. Okay. Sorry to uh, distract you for the moment, Joe, but you will have plenty of things to do in a moment. Uh, can you see that, Joe? I can Ooh. indeed. Yes. Okay. What is it? Good. That is a beautiful set of fossil forms. And I'll even yes. hazard the guess as to where they're from. And what is the black stuff? The black stuff that makes up the plant and the thorn, you mean? Okay. So the black stuff is carbon, the, the, oh, all yeah. that's left of the plant stuff. Uh, you realize, of course, that this is from a well known fern which has got thorns. Do you remember the name, Joe? Neuropterus. That's correct. And you found some of these in England, haven't you? I found them in, I found them in Australia, mate, before oh, you. Oh, there's no need to boast yeah. about that because I hadn't. You did. Um, but that's okay. I don't mind. Uh, so we've got fossil thorns, and the significance of those is, of course, in Nova Scotia, they're found underneath the dinosaur footprints. And the Bible in insists that thorns did not appear on the planet till after the first man, Adam, sinned. So you've got a choice in all of our programs. Do you believe, unlike Charles Darwin, that the Bible is the word of God and therefore accurate? Because if I get up to a geologic conference and say, I've got fossil thorns and the dinosaurs are on top of them, therefore dinosaurs did not die until after man was on the planet you can realize that this is regarded as provocative in a world that says, you know, dinosaurs died out millions of years before man was on the planet. But that's not the point tonight. The point is the fossils. This is a plant fossil largely reduced to carbon. Now, Joe, while you're still trying to fix your thing there, cast your eyes on that fossil. Lovely little fossil nightier fish. Okay, where is it from? Green River Formation, I believe, those one in Wyoming. In Wyoming, that's yeah. correct. But unknown to most people, we still have that fish living in Australia today in the Murray River. It's one of our Murray River herrings. Yes, I know. Millions of years separate the two according to evolution. Something should have evolved, but they haven't. They produce their own kind. And even though you want to give the Murray River herring a different name, it, that's not evolution. That's just someone's skill with a pen and a piece of paper. Now, in reality, we've got fossil fishes here today, we've got fossil thorns, but neither of those is the point of what you're about to see. You see, we called it creation research because, as one clergyman said, yes, it was him who came up with the suggestion, you guys actually do research. You're not just creation scientists who have a view, you actually get out there and do research. Now, I'm going to show you some of the historical experiments, which we do with homeschoolers, and we've done at Jurassic Ark, on making fossils, and now we've taken it one step further. And those of you in the USA, I'm sure Glenn will tell you as soon as he gets this equipment set up to make fossils rapidly. Oh, not just the 
plant fossils we've been working with, but keep your eyes on the extension to things like fishes and bugs and things like that. Now, Jar, if I can get this right, let's just see that I can get my screen up. Can you put my screen up, Joe? Yeah, you get it up in uh, in, in your yeah. end first. Okay, so there we are. I've got that up. All right. That's on the screen, Joe? It is indeed. Good. All right. Now, some of you have been watching for quite a while, and we thank people for the – basically, we're getting to – tens of thousands of views uh, in, in short times now. We're very grateful for that. But you'll know one thing. There is a warning that Paul gave to Timothy nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, modern versions would use the word knowledge. It doesn't matter whether it's science or knowledge. They are both derived from the same Greek word, which means information or knowledge. Beware of false science, false politics, false economies, false false land rights, false anything, they will lead you astray. Now, homeschooling conference. Look at the mucky clay. Now, it's an unwashed clay straight out from underneath the swamp, and we were giving the kids pieces of it, and their job was to you know, make it into little balls, take some of those plant materials there, and we were setting them up to make fossils. The same way we'd learn to make fossils, not in millions of years, not in hundreds of years, not in 10 years. You see, they would pick up their green leaf. And, and we've discovered one thing for those of you who are interested. Most of the fossils that we dig up show evidence of having been green when they were buried, which is what I'd expect from Noah's flood, by the way. So we pick fresh leaves and we embalm them, embed them rather, in clay. There's our clay specimen, and uh, we make a little patty of it. Then we put the leaves in. Then we put another layer of clay on the top, squash it down, and then we vacuum pack it. Yep, we ask the mums, bring along a vacuum packer. And the kids put their clay patty in here, and then they drag all the air out of it, and it seals. Then they put a little label on it, and uh, they take it home to see how long it takes to turn into a fossil. Of course, we pick plants because they're the easiest and the plants are not going to get up and attack the kids. Uh, they, we don't pick the thorns because they're liable to actually trip over the sharp bits and get embedded with clay. Not that it would be a problem. Clay is actually a fairly good antibacterial substance. So we know that it's not bacteria in this packet that's actually doing the action. And we get methane sometimes, but clay is antibacterial, so there's no bacteria involved in making the gases here. But you see, come to Creation Research, and you'll see we grow beautiful specimens of one of the best ones that we've found to use, good old herringbone fern, uh, almost a universal fern. Um, again, you see the fresh green leaves. We also discovered it's not just green leaves, that we get our best results in spring when the plant is sending forth new. Ah, actually, do you realize what that means about the climate before Noah's flood? There never was winter or summer. Plants today mm. respond badly to winter and much better to spring and reasonably well to summer. Although we've got a bit of a hot drought out here at the moment, but there's our herringbone fern and we take specimens of fern in their prime, particularly in their spring prime, put it on kaolin clay. You see ours has been washed. Um, we get the best results from the washed clay. Kaolin, by the way, is a very common ingredient of shale. 
shale is your best source of plant fossils. And the connection? Well, I've told you many times that over the years, as I've investigated coal and fossils, clay is the common ingredient. If you don't have microscopic amounts of clay in coal, it will never turn into high-grade coal. Uh, it's not time that makes coal. It's actually the presence of clay. It's not time that makes the fossils. It's the clay that's actually reducing them down to carbon. You see, there it is on day one. One herringbone fern, 21st the 1st, 24th the 1st, 2020. This is pre-COVID just uh, day one. Day 14, you will see there's still some green at the top, but most of the leaves have been blackened. <clears throat> no, we haven't heated it. No, we haven't added anything. There's just clay and fern in the absence of air. Actually, what are we imitating? What are we copying? Noah's flood, massive amounts of rock being destroyed. The Bible is emphatic, particularly in the New Testament, that God catastrophized the world. He actually messed it up. He destroyed it. Um, and in doing so, the rocks that had clay-forming minerals in would have been torn to pieces. Where would the clay come from? Well, commonly granite has feldspar in it. So do a few other rocks. But you might know that feldspar plus water plus carbon dioxide actually makes clay fairly quickly. So here's our clay. It's now under pressure because of the atmosphere pressing on the bag and the clay is underneath it. And in 14 days, it's gone black. But you see, in 14 days, some of it is still green and it's turning black. And by 28 days, uh, 24 days later, you now have all stuff turned black. Now, when you look at this and compare it to a fossil, there's the original green one. There is the black one at 58 days. Yes, I tell you what, these experiments can be boring. Watching a bag for 58 days is not the most thrilling thing on the planet. But I tell you what, add patience to your faith, the Bible says, and it sure helps. We tried it with many plants. There's poor man's spinach. You can eat it. It's not as good as the normal spinach you buy at a shop, but uh, it actually turns to fossils. And the black? Well, we've opened that bag and opened the nice, we had this inside a clay parcel, just like the kids made. And the ones on the inside, the one on the left there, becomes fantastically black. The one on the outside, not so black, but you'll see it's got a, a sort of a chemical coloration around it. But they both go to jet black fossils like the plants are when you dig them up. And if you come to Jurassic Ark, and hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'd encourage you to, you will see our experiments on display and you will get to take part in them. Creation research, not just science, but research where you actually investigate things like, do fossils take vast amounts of time? Answer, no. Notice our th statement there, process is the key, not the time. If you have the right process, you don't need much time. No wonder the evolutionists take a long time in their theories. They have the wrong process. Plant, plant dies, plant falls to the bottom, plant slowly gets covered up. Come on, be honest. The plant's rotten before it gets even buried. Time is not the key. Process is. Remember that statement? When you looked at the coffee shop in Charles Darwin hometown, what a sad investment in the future. 
to teach the kids that long, slow processes have evolved the coffee tree. And you see, this is done because the Bible says God spoke and the plants came forth out of the ground. Bammy, there's a coffee tree. Two days later or three days later, God tells Adam, you're free to eat. Can you imagine the fruit was already ripe? Man, this is impressive stuff. But what this false knowledge is, is going to do is stop you believing, just like it stopped Charles Darwin believing. False knowledge leads you astray, and there's the reverse. True knowledge, no, it won't save you by knowing that fossils can form rapidly, but it does point you in the right direction. True knowledge points you to Christ because it removes all the false knowledge, the false objections out of the road. Okay, upgrade. What are you looking at? Looks like a giant shell from World War II, doesn't it? Well, we've had to invest a fair bit of money in doing this upgrade. But you see, in reality, we've got bags we buy from the supermarket. We've got a vacuum packer we buy from a, a, an electrical store. We've got power. We've got clay. And we've got you know embedded plants in plastic bags. Not exactly high-tech stuff. Moving up one level invest in a mega press, one that actually can compress the clay. Why? Because most of the plants in the fossil record show evidence of being compressed. And they, they are in shale, which is up to 70% clay, and usually one of the kaolin family clays. What have we got there? Well, there's the press um, presser coming down from the top, and what looks like the end of a bullet is actually a well-machined um, top of a pipe that's actually going to press on the pipe at the bottom. And then there's a red mat at the bottom. So let me pull it apart and show you. On the right-hand side is the tube we're pressing into. On the right-hand bottom is the plunger that's coming down underneath the press. And the press presses down on the middle of that. Then underneath that, there's a well-machined, absolutely airtight um, nylon washer. Uh, nylon, so it slides, uh, absolutely airtight, so no nothing can come out. And then at the bottom left-hand side is the, well, quarter-inch thick leather, really, that we actually use underneath it when we are pressing the uh, clay down. The clay fills up that tube on the right. Oh, look at the one at the uh, right-hand, left-hand top with the hole in it. Once we reckon the experiment's finished, we actually lift up the uh, machine, pull out the leather, and then we insert it into the metal holder and compress the clay right through. We end up with a machine that's like that, and you've got the bottom, which has now got the hole in it, and out of it comes this. Do you realise that used to fill up that... I meant to show you the side. It used to fill up that whole thing. Now it comes out and the clay has been compressed. The slowest part of it, by the way, is actually waiting for the air and the water to come out. We put that in. If you buy, say, fresh kaolin clay from a pottery, it will come damp. It will come wet. You can buy ecolite, uh, which is a white powdered clay, same sort of family, but you have to messily mix it up yourself and you'll get the amount of water totally wrong compared to natural clays, but it still works. So you get compression. Uh, the slowest part, you push it down until water starts to dribble out the bottom. Water, by the way, is incompressible. So if you leave the water in there, you don't get nowhere. 
Um, so the water's got to be able to escape. And in the real world, it actually will escape. Uh, in the real world, if you have imagined uh, Noah's flood as rocks and everything being destroyed as the world is cat cataclysmos, that's the Greek word that Peter uses. The world is cataclysmos, smashing the granite, smashing all of those, turning the feldspar into clay very rapidly, and then dumping it along with millions of plants, and then the weight of the increasing water. Remember the Bible says the water reached the depth of covering the highest mountains, over 10 cubits above the mountains. Now, water is an incredibly heavy stuff, and so it would have compressed all the stuff that's at the bottom, the plants, the clays, etc. Well, there's our curator, Daryl, along with some of our very expensive equipment in the background for making methane gas. Yes, these experiments can generate both. Um, well, what's he doing? Well, we've actually upgraded. Um, we haven't upgraded Daryl. He just seems to be aging maturely <laughs> as we utilize his skills. But Daryl's got two degrees, has been a missionary involved in uh, helping Bible translators, etc., and now works full-time for us. But you see, he, um, he takes animals. What are you looking at? Well, that's the back leg of a toad. And we put it into this clay, you know, about eight, 10 inches high and compressed it down to only a couple of inches, um, you know, about five centimeters high, then broke it open when we taken it out and the fossil is absolutely compressed and it's already gone to black, leathery, hard stuff. There it is. You can even start to peel it off. When you say peeling it off, the actual fossil and the material is still there. Well, that's the thing that's interesting. Most people don't appreciate the fact that when you look at our fossil fishes, um, if you get a three-dimensional one, you can readily see the fossil is still there. But most of the plants, like this one here, our fern, that's gone to almost black carbon after about a week. And you can lift it out. But then that's what you can do with the fossils. You see, here is a genuine fossil. That's what the evolutionists would say. And the rock is supposedly, well, nearly 100 and plus million years old. You can see the fern. Um, it's an ondopteroides, if you want, you're interested, dichoridium ondopteroides. And when I get my, whoops, when I get my pencil on the right-hand side, can you see I'm lifting the fossil up? That is the plant still there, just turned to carbon. And it's fascinating to pull out a whole fern plant squashed flat, have to be careful because it's no longer as strong as it used to be, but it's really still there. And the same is true with our artificial fossils. Or perhaps should I say real fossils um, made in a synthetic manner. There's the fern. You can see on the right-hand side, I've lifted the leaf up, just like happens in the real world with real so-called ancient fossils. Well, that fossil there, remember, didn't even take 58 days to get to that stage. It was that stage in 14 days. We just left it there to mature. Hmm. Look, we're also moving into bugs. Now, this is one of our favorite bugs because most of the ladies hate it. Uh, what is it? Well, none of you. You probably don't recognize our Australian bush cockroach. As somebody said, it looks like a trilobite. Well, 
it is an insect at least. And it's nicely squashed flat and beautifully, well, it's beautifully preserved. Uh, you break it open, you've had it in there for one day. One day, that's it, folks. Did you hear what I just said? The actual compression rate has got nothing to do with heat because even those synthetic experiments done by scientists who say, well, you can make fossils in one day, they use a similar method, but they use bentonite clay, which we wouldn't recommend at all because it's not the one that's commonly in shale. We find kaolin both in the clay and in the shale. But you can make your fossil cockroach in one day. Not a million years, not a hundred million years. Uh, you can make it in 24 hours. And not with temperature, like the scientists try. The scientists try to duplicate time with temperature, but I'm sorry, they are so far out, it's not funny. Temperature does not indicate time. You've got to have the right process. Now, can I encourage those of you who are watching in Oz? Uh, yes, all of these bits of equipment are expensive, and I'd encourage you to donate. It's very simple to do so. It's uh, currently keeping us very and truly humble financially, uh, but you can use our phone number and donate as simple as that. We can go to our website and donate for what we do. Now, Joe, if you want to come back and remember the folks out there, we will be having questions coming up a little later. But in the meantime, Joe's going to deal with a statement that shows up in Scripture. Uh, you've got a little study for us, Joe, before we move into the main section, correct? Just a little one, yes, to introduce things, because this is a, a question which uh, we do get a lot as we start <clears throat> discussions around creation, uh, about God, about the fall of mankind, and of course the recreation which will be coming as well. Um, when did all of this start in terms of the evilness, I mean, uh, in terms of the bad side of things? I mean, how could there be um, you know, evil if all things were made by God? How could a good God make something that is evil? Or did God make evil in the beginning? Or who actually defines what evil is? And uh, these are all very important questions. They're all big questions. They're all good questions. And that's what we really want to try and have a little bit of a study in tonight. And the bulk of this will be taken by John. What I thought I'd do as a way of sort of uh, introduction is just do a little Bible study because it's a uh, section of scripture which often gets overlooked. It's a section of scripture which can be, if you uh, take it at face value, which is how it's supposed to be taken, be a little bit depressing. But there's some good news towards the end. Um, if I uh, am feeling particularly uh, provocative when I'm preaching in a church, I uh, will sometimes uh, ask the entire congregation, hands up who's made in the image of God. Hands fly up all around the room. And I have to say, I'm sorry, nobody here is made in the image of God. And the pastor looks like he might be about to throw me out. So I have to say, all right, let's do a little Bible study, right? Uh, and actually break this down and work through this. And now I'm not going to go to Genesis chapter 1. Oh, it does say in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And then it goes on to say that God did make man in his own, in their own, in his own image according to his likeness. That's Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Uh, and I'm not even going to go to the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 where it says that man sinned 
sin, death entered the world, the world was cursed, and uh, man was now no longer a perfect human. He was a sinful, fallen human. Now, the chapter that I'm going to be going to is Genesis chapter 5. Um, what does it say in Genesis chapter 5? This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and named them man in the day they were created. Ah, here we have our first empirical statement. In the beginning, God made man in his own image. Now, the Bible throughout uh, Scripture refers to God as the author of all things that are good. In fact, Glenn's going to mention a little bit later about how God is love. You see, God is the very definition of good, and we know this because Jesus, who was God, who came to the earth, had an encounter with the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler said, Good master, how am I going to get to heaven? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, of course, Jesus was questioning this man's motives. Uh, and the reality is that Jesus was God and was therefore good. But we find that if man was made in the day that God created him in God's image, then man was also very good. Because we have that declaration at the end of Genesis chapter 1 that everything that God made was very good. There was no evil things um, manifesting in the world. But if we carry on down Genesis chapter 5, we're on verse 3 now. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Okay, question. Who was Seth made in the image of? Because it wasn't God. You need to what he just said? Seth was made in the image of Adam. Adam lived 130 years and became a father of a son in his own likeness, in Adam's likeness, according to Adam's image. You see, Seth was not made in the image of God. Seth was made in the image of Adam. All right, question. At this point in time, was Adam a perfect human being? No, he wasn't. Adam was a fallen human being. Now, Adam had originally been created in the image of God, so he had that inheritance, as did Seth, because Seth was related to the first man who was made in the perfect image of God. He was a made in the likeness of Adam. He wasn't Adam. He was from Adam. He was made in the likeness of Adam, and Adam was made originally in the likeness of God. But no longer is this a perfect likeness. No longer is this a perfect image. It is a marginal image. It is a broken image. It is a stained image. It is an image as if you look in the mirror that has been smashed, that has been covered in grime, that has had mud and excrement thrown all over it. No longer is this a perfect image. No longer is this an image that is good. It is a broken image. And poor Seth was not made in the image of God. He was made in the fallen, corrupt, sinful image of his father. So going back to the church congregation, hands up who's made in the image of God. I'm sorry, there's nobody alive on earth today who's made in the image of God. We're all made in the sinful image of our fathers. And they were all made in the sinful image of their fathers. And they were all made in the sinful image of their fathers, all the way back to Seth and to Adam. And um, ah, Adam was made in the perfect image of God originally. 
but now it's a fallen image. You see, this question of evil, this problem of evil, this issue of evil is now something that affects every single one of us because no one is made in the perfect image of God. We are all made in the fallen and corrupt image of our fathers. I mean, that's what it says in Romans, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our oh, problem, because uh, that's Romans uh, 3.23. In Romans 6.23, just a couple of chapters later, it says that the wages of this sin is death. You have to realize that the reason that we die is because we're sinners. And everyone's a sinner. Mm, this problem of evil, that origin of death, goes straight back to Genesis, where it tells us that when did this all start? And it started with Adam and all of us being descended from Adam. Yes, we certainly can claim that inheritance of mankind. Human beings were originally made in the perfect image of God and praise the Lord for that inheritance because only descendants of Adam can be saved. But the reality is this issue of evil, this problem of evil is now something that affects every single one of us. So it's really vitally important to understand what is evil. Where did it come from? How could a good God allow something evil to happen? And surely if God's the one who defines evil, doesn't that make him evil? Well, these are the questions we need to delve into. And you'll soon find the important connection comes when you find that it's Jesus Christ who took on that death and uh, took on evil, took on the sin of mankind in the death on the cross. Ah, but I wonder how that relates to this origin of evil question. Well, John, now it's time to go over to you. All right, Joe, uh, just bring me on the screen. Now, there's some very um, unpopular verses in the Bible that it really does take, an, I guess you'd have to say, a fair bit of being humbled to actually admit they're true. Like verses that say, there is none good, no, not one. Now, you might run the local charity shop. Surely that's a good thing to do. Uh, you might be helpful to your mum, but yet the Bible says there is nobody good, not a single one. Now, you know it's true of your neighbour, but <laughs> it surely couldn't be true of me. I go to church, uh, and yet the Bible is emphatic. The wages of sin is death, and if you've ever struggled with the death of a child, then you have to realise that child could only die because it's already a sinner. Oh, never thought of that? Only sinners can die, and that's why Jesus chose to die, because he wasn't a sinner. He did not deserve to die. He chose to. And there's all sorts of directions we could go from that. But today we want to deal with how do you define sin? How do you define evil? Where does it come from? All of those sort of things. Now, Joe, will switch me back to my screen again, if you could do that. Where are we? Have I? Yes, we have. That's good. So all I need to do is just press the button, correct? Uh, you just need to make sure you're on your PowerPoints and then you should be good to go. Yeah. There we are. Psalm, there we are. Okay, Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, you want to look it up sometimes because it deals with the whole of this issue. Oh, and that's why I haven't got the Bible verse up there. Copy it down and go and read it a problem that plagued David, a solution that was in front of David, and one that we insist on in creation research. How do you recognize design? How do you recognize the first man would have been created? Albeit he was made in God's image. Uh, you see, that's why we speak and monkeys don't. God is a speaking dog. 
God. That's why we can create uh, not as well as God can, but we were created in his image. Now we've had damage with that. I remember Professor Rendell Short's wife getting herself into lots of trouble because she insisted that we're no longer made in the image of God. And people said, oh, that's just ultra-reformed hyper-Calvinism. No, it's actually what the Bible actually says. We were created originally. We were made. We were designed in the image of God. Then man has sinned. I was at Oxford one of these uh, occasions in ministry over the past 40 years when a student uh, came at at the end of the talk. My, My talk was not about this subject. It was about God and his creation. And he said, uh, I say, I say, if there was no God, would there be no good? And I was pleased that he'd raised that issue because, you see, that's where we're going to. If you want to know what is evil and where it's come from, then you have to know what is good. And you have to know who is God and what is evil. I mean, if we're talking about the Hindu god Kali here, the goddess of death, then what is good? Who decides this? What is evil? What about Vishnu? What about uh, the, 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 the Buddhists? They don't have a God. How do they decide what's good? You see, one of my friends in India was a missionary who was set alight by the Hindus there. And they would have thought that's good. It needs to be done. How do you decide these things? Now, this is one of the things that that student at Oxford needed to know. Uh, You see, I came across this years ago when I worked with Scripture Union. If you know God, you know good. If there's no God, there is no good. I mean, a simple little um, connection, even though it's not linguistically correct, is that God or good is God plus zero. You see, if you know the right God, you know the right good. When we have a look at politics, politicians want to pass laws which in their eyes are usually good. And what they mean is good for them, not necessarily good for everybody. Um, But if you have the right God, then you have the right definition of good. But how does knowing what good is help you with what evil is? You see, there's the question. If God is good and he made everything good, then where did evil come from? In most people's minds, that's the way they phrase the question. What did God make? Well, copy down those verses, look them up. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, but this God is not named. Exodus 20, he is named. In six days the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is God. He made all the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that's in them. You realize Genesis 1.1 could be any God? But he finishes chapter 1, verse 31, where then God saw everything he made, and it was very good. And you know by now in Exodus 20 that the six days are related to the God who is Yahweh, the God who is Jehovah, depends on which uh, Hebrew school you went to. So that we're talking about one God and one God only, and in the New Testament, this God is defined a bit further. This is Jesus Christ who made everything for him and by him. There's the verse at the end. God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. But without being able to tell us who God is, you can't tell us what good actually is. Or better still, you can't tell us what evil is. You see, this is the problem that was raised at a debate when William Lane was at the uh, Craig was at the height of his popularity back there a few years ago. Uh, Dr. Alex Rosenberg, 
he told the Christian theologian at a debate in Purdue University back in 2013, he would turn Christian if Craig could explain why God would allow evil. Now, sadly, Craig, Lane Craig never, never got there because, you see, he wants to put God and evolution together. Now, as I said to one school, um, the guy on the school board, because he said, oh, oh, we worship the God of, of creation. And I said, well, how do you believe he created? Oh, millions of years of evolution. I said, well, you don't worship the God of the Bible because he tells you he made it all in six days. And he was horrified that I would tell this reputable Anglican gentleman that he did not believe in the God of the Bible. Well, you've got to challenge Lane Craig about that too, because he uh, goes everywhere talking about this God creating by millions of years of evolution of death and struggle, when the Bible tells you death and struggle are post-consequences of Adam's sin. At the moment, there's a good question. What about the poor children in Gaza? Why does God allow war? They are good questions. Don't run away with them. Uh, don't hide from them. Because if you do, your kids will get lost in the absence of an answer. But here's one thing that most people don't do. When do you find the first word, the first use of evil in Scripture? Fairly simple question. There it is in Genesis chapter 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God made. It, it didn't happen by itself. Out of the ground, the Lord God ordered out of the ground the Lord God it was his, his instructions he made every tree to grow that's pleasant to the sight now do you realize God was concerned with how you see his work I, I was outside before this program photographing bees on a beautiful gum tree a sweet gum tree and they were having a wonderful time on this absolutely magnificent flower that had just opened it was very pleasant to watch and pleasant to smell and I tell you what, the bees sure knew it was good for food. And if you ever want sugar in your tea in the bush, then get some of these flowers and stir them in. The tree of life was also in the midst of garden as well as and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm sure many of you have read that, but you actually don't believe that the chronology in Genesis is accurate or reliable. And you may have been told that Genesis 2 is different than Genesis 1. And you can go to the fact file and the Q&A that Diane has a lot to do with keeping up to date and have a look at all of these things in there. Uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are just two sides of the same coin. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Okay, what's the question here? When did God tell Adam this? You see, Adam wasn't yet a sinner. Adam was made in the image of God. Everything God made was very good. Did you just catch that? He told Adam about this tree before Eve was made. And Eve was made on the sixth day. And only after God made Eve did he describe the world as very good. And that world included the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Made by God as a very good thing. Oh, have I just jammed up your neurons? Have I just thrown a puzzle into your brain because the Lord God only made that which was good? 
he is a very generous God too, because if you can imagine a planet before summer and winter, before Noah's flood ruined everything, there must have been gazillion trees, all with flowers and fruit and all just beautiful to sight. So God was very generous. He just said, there's just one tree, Adam, you won't eat of this. Adam could have eaten millions and millions of trees, but there was one tree that God claimed exclusive rights over. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil was made before the end of the sixth day. Now, I guarantee 95% of you who are watching have not even noticed the importance of this chronology. He made the tree before he pronounced the tree and everything around it very good. Hmm. Okay, so what does that make evil? Because it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I'm going to ask you, um, where does this word evil come from? I found it very helpful over the years. I've said it a few times. We had a couple of Bible scholars, linguists on our board, and I, I spent time with them, spent months with one of them, asking him questions as we drove all over Australia. He was one of our chief Aboriginal linguists, and he could read about 30 languages and translated the Bible into at least five of them. I'll tell you what, it was good to talk to Alan Hall. Dr. Alan Hall, who got his Order of Australia for his linguistic benefits to the Aboriginal people. Why the world e word evil? Because to know what this word means, means you can turn it into other languages. Start with your Hebrew, Strong's Concordance, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, 7451. The Hebrew word translated evil here, because if you look up your Bible, your English Bible, which I did about an hour ago, I've got some of these websites that have got 30 or 40 translations and almost inevitably it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the Hebrew word means bad or evil, natural or moral. And yes, in Strong's Concordance, it'll give you other numbers and you can follow them through to see the limitation of this. But in English, we translate it to the word evil. But have you ever asked why? It pays to know why we use words in English, particularly if you end up in court, you'll need to know why you're using the word or why they, the judge might object. Uh, 7489, it comes from a primitive root. The basis, uh, you know, words are made of, of, of little bits that you put together. If you speak German, you understand that very well because some of their names are stories. Um, the primitive root here, the basic bit means to spoil by breaking in pieces to make something good for nothing. Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it because in the end you will surely die. The good that God has done will become as nothing to you. Your body will begin to break up. You will die. There's the full connotation. But you see, we don't use Ra in, in, in the English version. We put it into English and the word evil. It is really helpful if you want to see why the first translators into English have stuck consistently with words like evil. It's because English is connected to Sanskrit. You know, having been to India, I found it really helpful to pursue this connection for many English words. And of course, some of our words have gone back the other way. So we use boomerang to describe some of the Indian throwing sticks. They've got one back from the Aborigines around Sydney. But Sanskrit to English is what I'm going to investigate.
here's the first one I came across. I came across many stories of Manu as I've traveled all around the globe. And I've discovered the story of Manu in Sanskrit deals with the guy who was in charge of a big boat and he had his seven spiritual helpers on it and there was a big flood. And the Indian story says we are all descended from Manu. By the time you get that word in Scotland, it's Manus. In English, it's the kin of Manus. In Scottish, it's MacManus, the sons of Manus. Okay, the sons of the person who survived the big flood. So when I was in a school and I said, do you mind if I deal with the origin and history of man? The, the principal said, no, 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 just don't bring religion into it. And he couldn't object when I brought Sanskrit into it because he couldn't figure out where the religion was. But by the time I got down to the kin of man, of course, which is actually a translation into MacManus and finally mankind, their textbook was the origin of man, mankind. And I said, these are the relatives of the man who survived the big flood. And I hadn't even got to my Bible yet. He was mad as a hatter. Having word knowledge can be very helpful in opening people's minds. So what about evil? You see, having traveled through Europe many, many times, I've uh, discovered that many languages that have ended up in English have actually sort of migrated simply by the use of their vowels and sometimes the consonants, you know, the, the E's and I's and O's and A's and U's or the T's and those sort of things. Evil eventually becomes evil. Some of you are familiar with this sort of consonant change because some of us who live in Australia have our Kiwi relatives come over and they count differently than we count. Uh, Aussies do what most of the English do. One, two, three, four, five, six. The English that have gone to New Zealand have developed a, a phonetic variant. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's how they say it. So this is a natural process that happens by isolation. Evil, it becomes evil. Evil becomes, by the time you're heading back to India, you'll find in ancient languages, it's upel. And eventually, it becomes upelo. And, and talking to the experts, upelo means up and over a line. Hey, that's what evil is, where you've gone up and over a line. What line? Now, connect the dots. There's some of the words that you've heard used in your Bible, that you've heard used in church. Evil, something that's evil, that involves a transgression. And, of course, most of you don't realize that words like egress, ingress, and regress are all related. Um, gress means to take a step. Trans means across, um, to take a step across. Across what? Well, in English, it's got the root meaning you've stepped over a line. Trespass? Okay, I've got property. And one day I went down the back and there's a council worker who has not sought my permission to come in with all of his equipment and he's crossed the boundary. Of course, the boundary was defined by a barbed wire fence, so he's had to willingly choose to step across. He's passed the line. Ah. The line, well, the line around my boundary is a legal line. It cost me a lot to get the maps drawn for all of these things. A transgression, well, who drew the line? Evil, up and over. 
You see, by the time we get through all of these words, transgression, trespass, you end up with a nice little three-letter word, sin. Um, you can imagine that as self-indulgent nature, if you like. That's a useful way to remember it because it does not bring God into your thought patterns. Okay, question. If God made everything and he called the knowledge of good and evil good, and then you know that good is actually crossing over a line, then you've raised an interesting question. Evil, it can't be a thing. Evil is not a force. You see, I say this because people associate evil as a force with Satan. You see, Satan is definitely someone who's chosen to cross the line. You know, in the few clues were given that Satan rebelled. He, he broke God's law. He crossed the line. He transgressed and he has chosen to stop there. And God has told him he can't come back. But you see, he may have chosen to do evil, but evil's not actually the person. Evil's not a thing. Evil's not a force. Evil is the act of spoiling what is good for you because you've crossed over a line. In the end, it does what the Hebrew word says. It makes something good for nothing. It's crossing a line you have not been authorized to cross. Now, here in Australia, I had a rather funny experience one day. I'm down on a coal expedition. Uh, I have to get to the bottom of a cliff, and I sort of got slightly lost, and I came across an old sign. I don't know how long it had been there, but it was all tattered and worn. There was no visible tourist pass there, uh, paths, and the sign said, warning, cliff's dangerous by order of local council. And I thought, wow. They've got authority. They've ordered the cliff to be dangerous. What they meant was don't pass this line because if you do, well, you're free to cross the line if you like, but if you do so, it's dangerous to you. There's a good 30 metre, 100 foot fall on the other side and that will make something of you into nothing that's very good at all. That's not a benefit to you. Evil is crossing a line you've not been authorised to cross. Remember the versions of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, etc., etc. Forgive us our. There's three words you'll see. Now, when I was at school, we learnt the bottom one. Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I understood trespass, but not coming from church. I didn't understand sins, and I didn't know why some of the versions had the word debt in it. How could doing something wrong leave you in debt? Well, you see, you've crossed a line that God said you can't cross. And God said there's a wage to be paid. Uh, there's a debt that you go into. And sin is breaking the law, and the law is defined by God. Even if it's just as simple as God saying, six days I labored, and the seventh day you rest. Therefore, six days you'll work, and the seventh day you will rest. How many times have you crossed that line? Oh, why should God make that a rule? Well, you have to take that up with him, not with me. John Mackay doesn't make the rules here, but I do have the obligation to tell you where the line is. Don't you? It might be a good time to open it up to a little bit of question before I move yeah, on to the second part of this. 
I think so. It looks like we're going to be here for a little while because the questions have been coming in thick and fast. But it's about time that we deal with maybe just one or two questions, Sam, uh, and some thank yous, of course, before we uh, move on. And a reminder that we do keep all your questions if we don't get to them in a stream. And I believe we've got a Q&A special coming up probably possibly next week um but soon anyway regardless it'll so be, uh, it'll either be the uh, next week or the week after. week after um and so uh, we will be able to answer your questions then if we don't get around to them today so sam over to you for some thank yous and then for some questions all righty well we've got to start it off as usual with doki doki bible club coming in with three u.s buckaroos a pair character stretching his arm forward raising a Thumbs up. Oh, I can't get that in the camera. There you go. There we go. Thank you so much, Doki. Uh, we've also got a super chat come in from George Bond. 20 Aussie buckaroos. The only facts of evolution are the missing facts. Um, we've also got another uh, super sticker coming in from Doki Doki Bible Club for 199 US buckaroos. Thanks. Written on top of a purple heart. Oh, thank you, Doki. Um, uh, just scanning to see if there are any more. And if there's any more that's come in during the live, that's fine. No, uh, here we go. Let's do our first question uh well i mean doki doki has done a few let's do a doki doki question um are harmful viruses and parasites good evidence against a world created very good i think that's you diane <laughs> i'm not i, I second <laughs> yes. i third well, we, we, we have to remember we no longer live in the world that's very good so there are some things that are not very good, but God declared things in the beginning to be very good. So what we need to do is say, all right, God's word is true. Therefore, we, we will start with that and we will check out the science. And is it possible that these things once were very good? So if we look at some of them, we find that they have missing genes. And uh, so they have undergone a process of loss and they can no longer survive on their own. So they have to survive by um, attaching themselves to some other sort of creature. So that's not very good, but then that's part of the whole world going downhill. Maybe in the past, they were very good. And sometimes we've found, well, they do have some bad characteristics, but they also have some useful characteristics. Some of the things that are considered to be intestinal parasites, turn out to have useful functions. It's not so long ago before we thought that all bacteria were bad, but now we're told we have to look after our microbiome, which is the masses and masses of bacteria that live on our internal body surfaces. So sometimes it's a case of we just didn't know enough about the science and the good scientific approach is not to write things off as being useless or bad. We just have to do some more research and find out. So having a biblical worldview is actually a very good way to approach science. We look at this thing. Could it have a good function? We might find that it does. Has something gone wrong with it? We may find that it is missing some genes or missing some functions, but because it's attached itself to another living thing, it can survive. So if you look at the world from the biblical point of view, started out good, has gone downhill, or the history of the world is good to bad to worse, 
we can understand a lot of science and just because we don't know all the answers doesn't mean there aren't any. We just need to do some more research. Thank you, Diane. Let me just take over with a couple of practical examples than anybody else. Um, I live in Queensland, which is a mega state size-wise and an awful lot of sheep. Um, Australia used to live on the wool of the sheep's back, was the old saying. It's not so mm. true these days, but we still have millions of sheep. And one of the interesting problems you face as a sheep farmer is to actually deworm your sheep, right? You have to do it regularly because otherwise the tapeworms and things like that will just compete with the sheep for food and kill the sheep if necessary. Now, it became very evident ages ago, and I remember doing a, a unit on parasitology as part of genetics, that the parasite actually is killing its food source. So even the evolutionists figured out that this is not working well because if the parasite kills what it's eating from, it's not doing itself no good either. Um, it's beneficial to keep the host alive. So here's what we discovered about treating sheep. If you actually treat them with high-powered drugs that kill all the tapeworms, they don't do as good as the sheep that just get treated and still have some tapeworms left. Of course, they do better than the sheep that are left untreated that are full of tapeworms. Now, you might find this fascinating, but the best homegrown remedy for treating sheep so far has been red cordial. So not only does it make the uh, not only does it make the kids hyperactive at school and on windy days, it actually keeps the sheep healthy. Uh, if you leave a few tapeworms in there, they function well to keep the gut clean. If you get rid of too many of them the sheep struggles to actually survive. So there's an example of where you change the conditions and it can end up something regarded as a disease or a pest ends up being very beneficial uh, to the actual sheep itself. The same is true for the bacteria Diane was talking about. Uh, my wife, as many of you know now, has dementia and I've gotten very interested in some of the causes and I was most amazed to find that by putting her under probiotics, it certainly began to treat some of the autoimmune diseases like her arthritis and that, um, and, and that's been very beneficial. But the further back I look, I have a feeling that one of the causes of many of these autoimmune diseases which ultimately lead to dementia is a overreaction to bacteria. So we've removed bacteria from the food. We've removed it from the, the environment. We've removed it from your body with perhaps too many vaccinations or too many chemicals, uh, et cetera. And the person itself is actually running short of good bacteria in their tummy. So mums, take my advice. If the kids want to go outside and play, let them play in the dirt. They develop their most immune system enhancement by the bacteria that God has put out there. 99.99% of these are beneficial to you. And as Diane said, the rest are degenerate. Glenn, you, Glenn, you are nodding your head violently there. So what are you agreeing with? Oh, just a soil scientist, you know. <laughs> Let the kids eat a little dirt. It's good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, that's actually true because the, um, you know, a spoonful of dirt is uh, what I talked before. It's got more microorganisms than there are people on the earth. And uh, the large amount of those are good for you and you need them in your system. There are many animals that need to eat a little bit of that um, because it's good for the digestion. 
Now we know what uh, what Glenn sprinkles on his cornflakes every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go that far, but uh, yeah, it's like you know when you your first child and they drop their pacifier, you take it and you go and you boil it, and by the second child, you just stick it right back in their mouth. <laughs> You find out it's not hurting them. It's actually good. It's kind of, yeah. Um, don't necessarily take advice on 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 on. <laughs> Wait till you have a couple of children. <laughs> you find out you just get there. You wipe it off. Let's uh, watch there. See what they do. Let's have one more question, Sam, before we um before we carry on with the second half of the study that John has got. We're not hearing you, Sam. Uh, that is because I'm on mute. There we go. There we go. Uh, we've got a few super stickers uh, that have come in, so I'll do those. Um, so we've got Iron Mac coming in with four US buckaroos, a pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. I have my my cup of juice. It'll have to do, unfortunately. Um, and um, I'm now questioning my life choices because uh, Douglas Boffey has sent in uh, 99 British um, uh, penny ruse, uh, a pile of poop with a face. I don't know if that's saying something about me um, or if uh, I, Maybe I don't it's know. Maybe called microbiome. Yeah. Yes. Well, there we go. I'll go with that one. Thank, thank you for that uh, that escape rope, Diane, on that one. Um, well, if this one actually follows on from um, uh, from Doki's question. Uh, this came in from uh, HiveSci. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, how many human parasites were on the ark? I uh, don't think there's an answer to that one because every in, in the world that was still moderately good uh, but hinged by judgment, hinged by sin, hinged by death, um, everything would have done much better because the first evidence is they were all living so long still, mm. right? So the food, which wasn't hypersterilized or anything, uh, came with its own set of biome and it would have been very healthy for them. I'm not sure if they went around eating mud, Glenn, but uh, <laughs> who knows? Uh, in reality, uh, they they would have each animal would have come on board with a completely healthy gut set, and if Noah had to feed them um, plants and that while they were there, the plants themselves. And Glenn, you've become very familiar with the bacterial stuff on the outside of plants in your experiments mm -hmm. and and things like that. So they all would have come fully equipped out of a better world. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though it was on the degener degeneration, but it wouldn't be as bad as what it was after the flood. Anybody else got any comments on that one? I think that summarizes yeah. it, Will. Yeah. Just a very, before we go on to yourself, then, John, just a very quick answer to this question here from uh, Spiral Type. Yes, Oslo Street Museum is open tomorrow. Um, we all know that we will have a very busy day with lots of people visiting because uh, we've had lots of visitors booked to come in. Um, but do feel free to pop in and say hi. It will be open from 9 a.m. tomorrow until 4 p.m. So we look forward to seeing you. Over to you, John. All right. Okay, let's just continue on here a little bit. Only about 20 minutes or so left. There is again our designed um, logo. You will see Sam's beautiful design in the middle with the tree of life, with the Adam and with the dinosaur. And all of those things were very good. And the point we've been making over and over again is part of God's good design 
included the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is defined as very good by God at the end of the sixth day. And again, a reminder that Eve wasn't there when God told Adam this wasn't a tree he was allowed to eat. That's important because later on, Eve obviously hears about it from Adam, but she misquotes it to the serpent. Satan had already overstepped the line, uh, or that may have been the first time he stepped the line, we just don't know, but he's already there tackling Eve and trying to get her to cross the line, and he succeeds. And when Adam uh, has to actually talk to his wife after that, you find the whole basis of marriage there. Adam could have said about Eve, I'm sorry, Lord, she's sinned, she's going to die, I need a new one. We never think of that. Or he could have got on his knees and said, Lord, as the sinless son of God made in your image, I intercede on behalf of my fallen bride. And you can see why the Bible portrays Adam as a type of Christ. That's what he was until he sinned. When Jesus came, he did exactly that for us. And he continues to intercede with his father on behalf of his fallen bride, the church. Now, we've got plenty of things that happen to show how this uh, comes up. We have elections, you have elections in America, in England, etc. And most of the election issues are really moral issues about where will you draw the line on funds to the Middle East, on funds for weapons, on supporting hospitals that do abortions, on homosexual gay rights, etc. So let's just pick the sex line. Where do you draw the line on these issues which are legislated in our current world? you have sex after marriage, sex before marriage? Yes, mum and dad, you have to talk about this stuff with your kids. Do you have sex uh, in a homosexual fashion? Do you have sex with animals? Do you murder your partner? I mean, come on, the spiders do it. And she mates with him and then she bites his head off. Is that the pattern we use? Now, if you drew the line there, why? Because many people in today's world, particularly since the 1950s sexual revolution, would have now drawn it that way. They see nothing wrong with living together, and this includes many people going to church. Uh, yes, mum and dad wouldn't have done that, but things have evolved. Things have changed. We now live together until we know whether we're right for one another, then we go and get married. And, of course, you know that homosexuality has been seeking privileges and rights that they never would have once had. In fact, here in Australia, our biggest airline is in, in, in a whole heap of financial and, and political mess because they've made it a policy about homosexual hiring. They've made it a policy to interfere in politics with the yes, no vote for our, our, our Aboriginal referendum stuff. And homosexuality is high on the lines of many airlines. Where do you draw the line? Um, Elton John, Yes, Elton John is a guy that our dear recently departed brother, um, Joe, in Texas, um, he knew him. He knew Elton John when he was married to a woman because now he's more famous for being married to a man. And look what he said. There is nothing wrong with going to bed with someone of your own sex. Now, this is a man who the queen, uh, it, before she passed on, um, organized for someone to be awarded to. People should be free with sex. They should draw the line at goats. Do you see his words? Now, I, I didn't translate that. That's what he said. The line. Now, the line used to be man and woman 
only after you're married. Then in the 50s, the line shifted down to sex before marriage. And then the line has shifted to homosexuality. And Elton John says, that's as far as you should go. Draw the line at goats. Um, I'm sure Elton John would draw the line at murder as well. Um, where do you draw the line? Why do you draw it there? The real issue that we have to address here in the brief time we've got left before our last question time is do you have the authority to draw the line? Does the government have the authority to draw the line? Fiscal policy, finance, economics, morality, schools, education will all involve this question. What is good for the population? What is good for the country? Where do you draw the line about what is evil for the country? Who has the authority? So did you draw the line there? Now, many Christians I know will draw the line there. Many Christians, mm -hmm. badly, and you heard me say that, that is a moral judgment on the Christians who say sex before marriage is okay, the ones who go to church. It's a moral judgment on the bishops who are making a noise at the moment. Premier Radio had a news report today on the bishops are demanding homosexual marriages in the Anglican church. Well, I, I'm telling them they're wrong. But why do I draw the line above there? Why do I draw it above sex before marriage? Why only sex after marriage? And by the way, mums and dads who are listening, make sure you talk to your kids about this. Otherwise, they'll learn it from the internet. Otherwise, they'll learn everything wrong from school textbooks from Elton John's example. He's a hero. He's fabulously wealthy. Don't you want us to be successful? Sorry, Elton John does not have the right to decide where the line goes. Neither does the Queen anymore. Uh, neither did she have the authority to uh, authorise an investiture for this guy to make him a knighthood, etc. Did you draw the line there because of Jesus? Because I did. Because in Matthew chapter 19, he says, haven't you read back in the beginning, God made them male and female. Elton John and all these others, their line is God does not have the right to draw the line. He has no authority because he didn't make the, the, the man and the woman. He didn't invent marriage. Now, can you see the moral clash we're entering into? It's got to do with where do you think we came from? Who created us? When I first started ministering in this area, one of my first sermons was on Matthew chapter 19 because divorce and remarriage was becoming a serious issue 40 years ago in the church. I tell you what, the moral issues have gone way beyond that now. Um, but the answer to that question is that the divorce and remarriage are becoming serious issues because people don't believe God's rules. In the beginning, he made the male and female, therefore a man will take a wife. And all of the Bible's teachings on a man not divorcing his wife, on, on a man not divorcing his wives. Oh, you see, there's only one reason ever given in the New Testament. Perhaps you better look it up because God does authorize divorce, but for one thing only. It doesn't necessarily mean he authorizes remarriage, but you better check that. That's not what my subject is about at the moment. My subject is, where do you draw the line? But this does raise that question. Elton John, uh, Charles Darwin would not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ because they don't recognize that he is the creator. You see, in my wedding sermons, in my marriage sermons, I would always remind people about who Jesus is. New Testament teaching.
because it matches the Old Testament. In the beginning, God. Which God? Uh, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth in six days. Jehovah God. By the time you get the New Testament, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was, let there be light. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This Word is Jesus Christ. Do you realize the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament? Yes, we don't want to touch on the Trinity today because some of you get totally sidetracked already. It's so important you stick with this. In the beginning was the Word. All things are made by Him. The Word is made flesh and dwelt amongst us. This Creator God is Jesus. Now, I had a simple line many years ago. If you want your marriage to work, follow the Maker's Manual. If it's not working, then find out where you went wrong according to the Maker's Manual. Yes, I used to have people come. This is from particularly some of the more um, happy, clappy churches. I remember one man coming and saying, oh, I've become a Christian. My wife isn't a Christian. And my pastor has said, I can get rid of her. He'll get me another wife. Really? I remember Paul saying, you do not divorce your partner just because they're not a believer. Find out what God's words rules are. And you see, he's got the right to draw the line. So challenge time to you when you're trying to figure out what evil is. Do you accept the authority of the triune God who is the creator, who came as a savior, whose name is Jesus, who is coming again to judge? Do you accept his authority to draw the line? Because you see, at the moment you say, I get away with it. Elton John's got away. He's got awarded. He's got fame. But there is coming a time when he will stand before a holy, righteous God who is coming back to judge. And he will discover he failed. He actually crossed the line. He had no authority to do so. And he will have to bear the penalty of his own sins. Uh, do you realize if you're going to be a Christian and preach the gospel, the gospel about God's love? Glenn's got a few things to say about that just to finish off today that you can't compare that uh, as to how valuable it is until you talk about God's right to judge. And this God is Jesus, and his double right to judge deals with the fact that he was willing to pay the price of our transgression, our stepping across the line, of our trespass, of our crossing into a property we were not authorized to be in, of our evil and our sin. He was willing to bear that penalty. But you see, the importance of that is he never sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So he wasn't dying because he was a sinner. He was dying because he chose to die. And he therefore was dying for your sin, for my sin. And without that, you won't understand the whole of the gospel at all. So hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1. It becomes absolutely necessary because of Genesis chapter 3, where we crossed God's line. Now, you can argue, was it an apple or was it a pear? Um, the ones that Doki Doki seemed to love sending to us. Was it an orange? Was it a bitter lemon? What was it? It doesn't matter. The point is God, the creator, who is Jesus, had the authority to actually draw the line. And better still, he had the authority to decide that his death alone as a sinless one would actually be sufficient to pay the price. Now, before we have questions, Glenn, you want to take just a couple of minutes to refresh us with what you've got because it's an important way to... Yes, sure. Uh, we were talking about 
you know, evil. And I was kind of going to give, you know, the other side. And John, you led into this, but we also talked earlier about uh, test everything and hold to what is true. I'm going to read out of 1 John chapter 4, and it starts off with, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And we were talking about the false teachings about, well, you know, God must be evil because he created evil. Well, first John goes on to say in verse four, verse uh, chapter four, verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and God knows and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So as John was leading into, our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is love. He's not evil, but he gave us a choice and he gave Adam a choice. Uh, the question is, what are we going to do with that choice? God drew the line. He had the authority. He's the creator. But he gave us the choice to choose. The Bible says, choose for yourself today whom you're going to serve. And I'll end at that. I think we've also just uh, lost uh, John as well. I think he's had to uh, go. He did just text me. But we've uh, we've pretty much reached the end anyway. We've only got about another five minutes or so, which is probably enough time to squeeze in one or two thank yous and maybe one or two questions. So, Sam, over to you. I'm on mute again. I do apologize. Uh, never mind. Uh, we've got a super chat to give out. Uh, thanks to from Neil Grindley. Super chat for 10 British buckaroos. Greetings to see our team and chatsters. Thank you so much, Neil. God bless you. Um, right. Okay. So this one is an interesting question. Um, so this one comes in from Douglas Boffey. Uh, has a stillborn committed a sin? Okay. Um I'll take the first section and obviously throw it open to the others if they want a uh, a, a, a comment on this. Um, has a stillborn committed a sin? Remember what our definition of a sin is? It's something that has crossed the line. Somebody that has chosen to go beyond the line. Um, however, we also have to marry that up with what I started with uh, in Genesis chapter 5, which is that uh, when because Adam had crossed the line, everybody is now conceived, uh, everybody is now born, everybody is now developed with a nature that is no longer perfect, with a nature that is no longer as it was created, with a nature that is a sin nature inherently in this. You can see this. Genesis chapter 5, God made man in his own likeness. God is without sin because he is the one who defines sin. He's the one who says, here's the line, step over it, and uh, you've done wrong. Stay this side of the line, and you are good. Adam chose to step over the line. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result, the entirety of mankind fell. Now, the entirety of mankind at that point consisted of two people, right? Adam and Eve. But what it means is because the entirety of mankind fell, 
all of those who are made in the image of this fallen mankind will also be fallen by inherent state. We are all sinful by inherent state. We all have a sin nature by inherent state. And we know this because verse uh, 3 of Genesis chapter 5, Adam had a son not in the image of God, but in his own image, in the image of a fallen human being. And uh, there's an interesting connection because there was another question that was asked on the chat earlier about, well, is that the reason why Jesus had to be born of the virgin? Maybe I'll let you uh, comment on that. But it does have a very interesting connection because it certainly seems to be that the sin nature is passed down the father's line. And you find reference to that throughout scripture, including in Deuteronomy, where it says the sins of the fathers, not the mothers, will be visited on the third and the fourth generation, right? So we are, all of us will have a sin nature the moment that our life starts uh, biologically. And we were discussing this on one of our programs uh, for around the museum the other day that we were filming biologically and biblically life starts at conception so a moment that there is a conceived baby there is a sin nature as a result and I'm sorry this is harsh and I have to, I have to say this as someone who has lost children um, that baby is deserving of death now that's a harsh thing for us to try and wrap our heads around it really really is um, but then the reality is all of us are deserving of death Every single one of us here. That's what makes the beauty of the gospel so important. Um, by the way, um, if anybody here is struggling with this as a, as a concept, if anybody here has lost children, if anybody here is struggling with stillborns or miscarriages, I would encourage you to do the same thing that I did. Um, fall down on your knees in front of your saviour because let's face it, you have just as much chance of saving yourself as any baby does. And the only one you can, the reality is that's nothing, right? None of us have any chance of saving ourselves. We are the same helpless position as any baby when it comes to saving us from our sins. Who can show grace and mercy is Jesus Christ. And so fall down on your knees and uh, praise him and ask him for that his will would be done. Because as the supreme being overall, he will be just in every decision that he makes. Diane, any comments? Well, yes, we don't become sinners when we commit the first sin. We are, we sin because we are sinners. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, David says that in one of the Psalms that um, he was conceived in sin. So, yes, sadly, it starts there at the beginning of your life and your life begins with conception, not when you emerge into the world. And certainly not when you commit your first conscience, conscious sin. Mm. And yet salvation is by grace. Indeed. Yes. So it, it, you know, it comes down to, to Christ. And I believe there's a reason he said, suffer unto me the children for such as mm. the kingdom of heaven. Um, I, you know, it's one of those things. I trust the Lord with my children uh, from conception on. Mm. That's who we put our hope in. So. Amen. Amen. All right, Sam. Um, one quick question. I know that may. <laughs> yeah. Uh, up to you. Bit, bit of a bit of a heavy one. Um, but I'll tell you what. Let's end with some good news. Doki Doki comes in with this. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Ah. Good question. All right. Well, I'll throw something in and then throw it open to the others. Um, 
I would hasten to add that the, the, the cross is a very important part. Uh, the, the physical cross, the reason why Jesus had to die on a physical cross is because that was what was prophesied um, in the Old Testament. But you can go one step further because it wasn't just a cross because if Jesus had been tied to the cross and then strangled, I'm afraid that that wouldn't have been a sufficient sacrifice. You see, there had to have been the shedding of blood now, the crucifixion itself was a horrendous way to go. It was the punishment saved for the worst of criminals. It was a punishment reserved and designed by the Romans, not just to kill you, but and not just to make it an agonizingly long death, but to actually put you on display as a warning for all others who would try and do uh, break the law or do the same crime that you've done. But the real key thing is that they would drive nails through your wrists and through your feet. And then, as we know from the account of Christ, he had one additional thing happen to him, which wouldn't have normally happened, um, because most of the time uh, the criminals would have had their legs broken, which would have uh, ended them off because just the weight uh, of them pulling them down would have basically killed them. Um, but Jesus had a spear thrust in his side. Uh, that was a prophesied thing as well, that he wouldn't have his legs broken. But it is the spilling of blood which is the real key thing here. How do we know? All throughout scripture, consistently, you find that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Uh, that's quoted straight out of scripture, right out of Romans, I believe. Uh, but you'll find this all the way down through scripture. Adam and Eve sins, so what does God do? He clothes them. What does he clothe them with? skin of an animal. Where do you get the skin of an animal from? An animal, right? And it's not going to be in a very alive state by the time you're finished skinning it. And this was from God. You see, Adam and Eve deserved death, immediate death. But they were sins were covered by the sacrifice of an animal. And you find that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve and their sons are now sacrificing animals. Oh, at least one of their sons is the other one only sacrificed vegetables and it wasn't good in God's sight because there has to be the spilling of blood. By the time you get down to Noah, God tells Noah the life is in the blood. God says Noah sacrifices animals for God and you'll find there are laws about blood and what you can and can't do. There's the same kind of laws, all strange laws about uh, you know killing animals and blood all the way down through the Torah, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteron Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, there are laws about blood going throughout the Old Testament. You think, what is the obsession with blood? Well, it's simple. Blood, the life is in the blood, as it says, uh, God said to Noah. And without the spilling of blood, without the physical shedding of that life which is in the blood, there is no remission of sins. So Jesus had to die not only as a sinless saviour, he had to die uh, on a cross as it was prophesied, and he had to die with the spilling of blood. It was a real key way of proving that he really was who he said he was, and it was the only way of being able to save sins. Any other comments from the team before we close? Well, just Romans goes on to say, just as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification for all men. It took Christ's shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of all sin. Very good. Oh, just challenge people to trust Christ as their Savior. Amen. Yeah. Challenge those who are we, out there. We, I, I, um, 
So we put, uh, at Easter time, we put together a, a video simply called The Gospel. Um, yes. And I would refer you to that. If you're, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, um, I would encourage you to, to watch it. It's, it's yes. very, it can be difficult to watch at times. It is graphic in places, um, but it's, it's needed. Um, it's, it's the reality of what Jesus went through on the cross um, and what he did for you. Um, and so watch it because of his love exactly. for us, because he loved us so much. Yeah. He endured that. That video is outstanding. Oh, oh thank you, Glenn. Um, but yeah, um, so I'd, I'd recommend, um, doing that, uh, if you can. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's my sort of two cents on it. Um, I already sort of, I have made a whole video on it, so that's why I'm referring you to that. There you go. Well, it's about time that we wrap things up, guys. We've reached the hour and a half mark. Thank you all very much. Yes, we are keeping a record of your questions. And as Sam said, it's either next week or the following week. We do have a Q&A special. Um, so uh, do tune in then if you have asked questions tonight that we haven't answered or you have had asked, uh, questions asked before on streams that you haven't had answered either. We will deal with a whole load of them as well as deal with some of your live questions as well uh, on that stream. So do join us next week for Creation Conversations. Until next time, folks, goodbye and God bless. And we will see you very soon. Continue to like, subscribe and share or creation research content. We really do appreciate all the engagement. So catch you later, folks.